thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The problem with the word reconciliation is that on the face of it, like motherhood and apple pie, no one is against it. And it can legitimately be used to refer to a huge range of outcomes from the miraculous and hard-won solving of age-old disputes to the banal and self-serving number crunching, as described in Donald J. Trump's The Art of the Deal. Reconciliation is our subject this week, and nowhere is it needed more than in the Holy Land, where Israelis and Palestinians Jews, Christians and Muslims consistently fail, to put it mildly, to see eye to eye. Here's one Israeli negotiator, Gershon Baskin, speaking on the Naked Reflection show, Resolving Conflict. And as in many conflicts, we have a a kind of a history of making first claims. Who was here first? Who was here the longest? Whose connection is deeper? Whose is more meaningful? Who is more inspired by divinity? Big problems to overcome. Discussing reconciliation with me this week are Janet Soskis, Professor Emerita of Philosophical Theology at the University of Cambridge and Chair in Catholic Thought at Duke University, North Carolina. And Christopher Wadibia, Honorary PhD Scholar here at the Wolf Institute, whose research is focused on Pentecostalism and politics in Nigeria, as well as Pentecostal relations with wider society here in the UK. Janet, is justice necessary for reconciliation or are they sometimes in conflict? As you've mentioned in your words already, Ed, reconciliation can be between individuals, between corporations, between populations and states. So it differs quite a lot. You know, can I be reconciled to my sibling if we fall out over um, a parent's will? It's quite a different question as to whether two states can be reconciled. And I think I would say if we begin with the state, which is very important, or collective bodies, then I think there's a missing word in here, which I would say is peace. I know this is reconciliation issue, not a peace podcast, but nonetheless, I think you can have peace without justice. And indeed, there was a a kind of slogan that went around in the 80s, I think early days of liberation theology, no peace without justice. I thought this was both wrong and damaging. I thought that then and I think that now because people need a basic level of peace to get on with life. 
What people want is quite simple. They want to raise their family simply. They want to love their friends. They want to have enough food to put on the table. And you can't have that without peace. And you're never going to achieve pure justice. You don't need justice for peace. Now, whether you need it for reconciliation, it depends on what level of reconciliation you you have. Clearly, historically, you don't. I mean, I don't think the majority of the British population still holds resentment against the Romans for invading this country, right? You know, but yet it was an enormous displacement, possibly a genocide of certain tribal groups, right? But some of these things just fade away. It depends on what level you think justice is going to be had. Absolute justice and righting of every wrongs is probably never going to be possible, but enough justice so that people can have whole, integral lives and feel important members of their society. That is a necessity. So, Chris, we need a certain level of justice. We need peace to achieve reconciliation. How does that apply in your research in Nigeria? I would raise the issue of who decides the nature of justice and what is the the type of justice that we're discussing. Are we discussing economic justice, social justice, political justice? For me, it's very easy to see this kind of discourse applied within the nature of the historical aftermath of the Nigerian civil war, um, which was essentially a context of inter-ethnic, inter-tribal confrontations. And I think the the legacy of the Nigerian civil war, which lasted from 1967 to 1970, to what extent has justice really been applied and to what extent has it been served within that context of course the conclusion of the civil war in many ways coincided with the discovery of oil and so i think that what had happened to a, a greater or lesser extent within the nigerian equation is you had this this fiscal band-aid that was put over these large wounds that essentially allowed for the injection of all of this you know newfound oil wealth and the capital that came along with that to perhaps lead the country to gloss over these inter-ethnic incongruities, these inter-ethnic points of aggression that I would argue have never really been dealt with to this day. So I think that's an important point to consider. And then also, I, I certainly agree with Professor Soskis about you know the notion you can have peace without justice. Uh, I think that it's actually quite a harmful binary when one uses this discourse of you know justice without peace when you have zero sum language that puts that creates the conditions for you know the society not being able to move forward without a, a zero sum result and i think that progress in many ways comes about with compromise it comes about with all involved actors seeing the complexities of what's involved and what's at stake in working to find a best fit solution regardless of um, what is being demanded Fine words, Chris, but what happens when those views, whether they're religious or ideological, are irreconcilable? The Abrahamic faiths, it's often said that monotheism is exclusive and generates intolerance and is actually stands up against reconciliation. I mean, would you agree? I take a lot of comfort and peace from, I believe it's the Catholic doctrine, the notion of the hierarchy of truths, which I find a lot of wisdom in that, in the sense of, You know, not all truths necessarily operate on the same playing field. So I think when you look at, um, you know, different Christian denominations, there are certain foundational truths, whether it be the resurrection of Christ, whether it be notions of 
the second coming and those bits. That in many ways is different than say how a certain Christian denomination looks at an individual's social practices or things of that nature, the emphasis that's placed on tithes and offerings and those bits. So I think for this question of irreconcilable differences, I would say that it's very context specific. I mean, me, I'm an optimist. I'm also a devout Christian. I think that nothing is irreconcilable as long as the involved actors actually place a good faith effort in each other and working towards a solution. But then again, that might just be my optimism speaking. Janet, your chair in Catholic Thoughts, help us here. Well, I mean, I have a number of irreconcilable beliefs with my own husband. It doesn't stop me from getting on with him pretty well. You know, an Arsenal supporter and a Spurs supporter. I mean, you can all kinds of irreconcilable beliefs and you can get on fairly well. I think when we're talking about conflicts like the Biafran War and so on, they're rarely about beliefs. We talk about Northern Ireland, never about beliefs. Did the IRA ever worry if they shot a Catholic British soldier? No, it wasn't that he was Catholic. It was he was British and a soldier. We're talking about conflicts at that level. When you're talking at the level of interfaith understanding, I think there's a lot that can be done and is being done. I mean, I think I know, Ed, you know almost better than I do, probably better than I do, Nostra Aetate, the Roman Catholic Church's document on the respect that Catholics should have for Jewish people. And I think that's a wonderful example of the Catholic Church sticking back and thinking that God's faith is in God's promises. God said that Jews were the chosen people. Christians must respect that. Christians can still believe that they are saved and they enter this promise through Christ. That's the way we do. But God's doing his own thing with the Jews. That doesn't mean they're not saved. And of course, you know, if you go on the convolutions of Christian theology, saved through Christ. But, you know, I wouldn't go about saying that to my Jewish friends necessarily. But I have a way of understanding as a Catholic, the way the Jewish people continue in their integrity. So that's a very good example in the 20th century of this kind of thing that goes on. It's, you know, the Catholic Church maintains it. It doesn't change doctrine, but there's a kind of a development of understanding, which I hope it's learned from Judaism in the first place, a development of understanding across time. A Catholic friend of mine, a priest, told me that when uh, the Roman Catholic Church allows women priests, the um, edict from Rome will begin with, as the Roman Catholic Church has always taught, we all fall back, don't we, in, in terms of our, our text to justify our position. Sometimes, and Janet, I feel that we people of faith. And Chris, also, we can apply the interfaith, the dynamic, the desire for building up respect for one another, particularly in the Christian Jewish encounters, as you've said. But we don't tend to acknowledge so easily the opposite dynamic. Now, you're right, Janet, that, you know, many of the wars you talked about, the conflict and the troubles in Northern Ireland aren't simply religious. But nevertheless, most unionists were Protestant. Uh, most Republicans were Catholic. You look at other wars in the Middle East, Israel-Palestine, for example, there is more than just a religious garb to it. So it's too easy, isn't it, to push the religion to one side and say it's not part of the problem, it's just part of the human condition. And so I wonder whether our faiths are as much part of the problem as they are the solution to these conflicts. I want to contest that, Ed. I mean, in other African countries where there have been terrific tribal disputes, Rwanda, there were Catholics and Protestants on both sides. They slaughtered each other on both sides because they were Hutis and Tutsis. It wasn't matter Catholics, Pentecostals. They were in on both sides. And I think where you get a strong loyalties that are banded across populations, 
and particularly perhaps across the poor, but not necessarily so, then that enters into a different dynamic. But we've seen all over the world that it doesn't necessarily map on religions. There'll be contested interests, there'll be um, historical grievances and so on. So I, I, I do think that the religious leaders in Northern Ireland were very clear about this. In the end, that whole dispute, especially on the Catholic side, had been taken over by criminals, right? They were importing weapons from Gaddafi. I mean, it, it was nothing to do with these being pious Christians, as it still is insofar as it's a remnant now. This is a difficult question because religion is certainly an organizing uh, mechanism. I don't mean to disappoint you, Ed, but I think I would agree with Professor Soskis in this situation because, you know, when I look at it in the context of Nigeria, for example, in southwestern Nigeria, Yoruba land is very much a melting pot of the religions. You have Islam and Christianity, and you have families that have a lot of Muslims and Christians within a single family. I think that it's important, and Professor Soskis raises this, to not allow religion to be divorced from these larger considerations of political and economic grievances. Since you're both disagreeing with me, I think we have to take the halfway indent. This is Making Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Janet Soskis and Christopher Wadibia, and we're discussing reconciliation. When it comes to science, reconciling apparent contradictions seems to be more common than it is in the fields of religious belief and politics. Take quantum theory. Does it nullify Einstein's insights? Richard Staley does not necessarily think so. Are we still searching for a theory that unifies relativity and quantum theory? Whether that way of thinking may in fact be the wrong way of thinking. If things are relational, maybe you're looking for a relationship or a common connection rather than a unified theory. That was Richard Staley speaking on the Naked Reflections podcast, The Mysteries of Quantum. Does achieving reconciliation demand a certain ruthlessness, do you think? How would you define ruthlessness? Is it the discipline that it requires? Is it, you've both talked about compromise, but I think sometimes there's a need to make clear one's own position. It certainly helps in a conversation and a dialogue with others when you know where your partner actually stands. And to hold on to that position may require a certain amount of ruthlessness. You know, the sort of thing, here I stand, I can go no further. I think that's a really interesting question. When I think of ruthlessness, I think more so perhaps of a commitment, you know, a commitment to implementing your vision for what this situation demands, what, what the solution requires. I think that that term ruthlessness almost provides for this um mutual exclusivity here. I, I think that we can come from different perspectives. We can be ruthlessly committed to implementing our vision, but there's naturally going to be overlaps. If we inhabit the same territory, we have the interest in peace. And as a result, I think it goes back to this notion of compromise. But I think ruthlessness phrases what we're getting at here, conceptually speaking, in a negative light. I think it's more so a commitment perhaps to the common good, a commitment to implementing a solution that is the most amount of good for the most amount of evolved actors, to put a utilitarian um, phraseology on it. I get that, Chris. I can see the discomfort with the word ruthlessness because, as you say, it's a negative. So l let's approach reconciliation in, in a different way. Does it require a steady grinding of progress, you know, step by step, or can it be a sudden breakthrough like alchemy? Janet, you touched on Nostri Aetate. 
you could argue, couldn't you, that Nostra Aetate was the culmination of a sort of development of thinking in the Roman Catholic Church, or I suppose you could argue that it was a sudden breakthrough. I think it was a culmination. It was a response to a lot of reflection, the horror of the Holocaust, all kinds of things. So I don't believe that ever something happens alchemically, although perhaps, as Chris has indicated, if if you discover a great deal of oil, you can pour it over troubled waters. I don't know. I think it's the slow and steady work of a lot of good people. And it depends on who the agents of reconciliation are, because there are specific denominated agents who might be church leaders or religion leaders or political leaders. And then there's the populace. Let's say we're talking about making a community say, a particular church community more respective to the dignity of lesbian and gay and bisexual Christians. It's not enough to just be ruthless. You have to bring people with you. And that's a slow and steady work. And uh, I think a lot of very good work of reconciliation has been done, even on the political level, by gifted and non-egotistical leaders who are willing to bring their people along with them, because that has to be done. And a gifted political leader or a gifted religious faith leader can do that and bring people out of the binaries, which Chris has uh, rightly diagnosed. I overheard a, an interview with young unionists in Northern Ireland recently, and the interviewer said, well, what do you think would happen in a united Ireland? And they said, well, we'd just be annihilated. Now, I, I don't know how they can possibly think that, because I know lots of Protestants in Southern Ireland, perfectly fine, and been getting on for decades there. You know, it's But it's that fear, that particular fear. So you need to bring a community along with you. And that's not the work of ruthlessness. That's the work of compassion and tact, I think. There is an element, Janet, isn't there, that the perception is as important as the reality. If I perceive that I'm under direct threat from you, or, or vice versa, that, that's what we have to deal with. And so it's, it's managing that perception in a conversation about reconciliation as anything else. So I've had young friends who were told going to a yeshiva for a year, whatever you do, don't go into the Arab quarter, don't go into the Christian quarter. I've been into both those quarters with Jewish Israeli friends. No problem. I mean, it was a heightened sense of fear. And sometimes I wonder about that. Of course, I don't live in the situation. But I remember walking through the Armenian quarter behind what was clearly a settler family they they got a baby in a pushchair, a toddler on the back of the pushchair, a toddler being led with a hand. The guy had a cracking great Kalashnikov over his back. Walking through the Armenian quarter, I thought, okay, maybe you need that gun back home. But, you know, it's just an atmosphere of fear that's built up. And I do wonder about that in Jerusalem in particular, if that's the way forward, because it seems so destructive. Chris, would you comment in terms of that aspect of fear in your own work? Because sometimes I, I worry... And like you, Janet, I wander through the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Armenian quarters of Jerusalem very easily. But I recognize that I'm a, a white European male and there's not the asymmetry of power um, that Palestinians may feel going through certain quarters and Jewish quarters or other groups may feel as well. And I just wonder, Chris, in, in terms of, for example, in Nigeria or in some of your work with the Pentecostal churches, whether the asymmetry of power makes this a lot more complicated. Yes, that's an excellent question. Well, I think in Nigeria, there's a large difference between the north and the south, in, not only in terms of development, but also in terms of religious 
population. So the North is dominantly Muslim, the Southeast is dominantly Christian, the Southwest, as I noted earlier, is a bit of a melting pot between Islam and, and Christianity. But I think the note of fear is very important because I, as a Christian, Nigerian Christian of the diaspora, I've been told on many occasions, don't travel to the North. No matter what you do, don't travel to the North. Yet I have a number of friends who are Muslim, Nigerian Muslims in Lagos, who are like, you know, brothers and sisters to me. And I think that Professor Soskis is very correct to highlight that this fear culture, this culture of fear, can perhaps reinforce negative perceptions of the other that can stand in the way of progress, that can stand in the way of breaking down these these differences. Um, I want to also articulate that uh, optics matter. I think um, when it comes to how in these reconciliation contexts, the importance of symbolism, the importance of ceremony, the importance of who is present, who is being seen, who is leading this. Is it equity is something else that needs to be articulated here. I think um, equity of input, equity of outcome. I think those are important bits to consider. Um, and also just one last point. In Nigeria, whenever you discuss, you know, um, perhaps the notion of interreligious encounter, of course, one would note the presence of Boko Haram in the north. And Boko Haram is a extremist death cult in many ways, but people often forget the majority of individuals killed by Boko Haram are Muslim, not Christians. So this in many ways actually relates to what Professor Soskis mentioned earlier in the sense of it's not just you know Muslims on one side, Christians on the other. Um, it's, it's more complex than that. But I think that you know the presence of Boko Haram in the North naturally creates a lot of fear along geographical lines. But I think even that very equation cannot devo- be divorced from the lack of effective government infrastructure. Boko Haram has been in existence now for more than a decade, and they are still, you know, conducting activities. Recently in Nigeria, there's been a a spike in in numbers of kidnappings across the country. There's a culture of fear that is suffusing the Nigerian state. And in many ways, because the Nigerian state, the government has yet to take responsibility to intervene, to apply the, the, the might of government in a suitable fashion, that culture of fear is continuing to suffuse the state, continuing to permeate the population and being unchallenged. Let me ask a provocative question then, Chris, and perhaps it also applies uh, to Janet. Can you conceive of reconciling with Boko Haram? And, And Janet, are there examples where reconciliation seems beyond the pale? Well, you know, if you define Boko Haram as a murderous death cult, no. I mean, there there were those children of God in Waco, Texas. No, they're murderous. It's a murderous death cult with child abuse on top. What would it mean to be reconciled with them? I mean, reconciliation can't just be sort of like a wallpaper that's put over everything. Not at all. I I think we have to be discriminating in different terms of different causes. I mean, one of the biggest fear things we have now in reconciliation is certainly not between religions. It's, it's, It's the fear between the uh, African-American population and the police in the States. You don't have to be in the States very long to discover that the police are terrified of black people and black people are rightly terrified of the police. And it's so ingrained. I mean, I'm quite terrified of American police. If you ever get stopped for something like going over the yellow line or whatever, you know, get out of the car, put your hands on the top of the car. This is personal experience. It's quite terrifying. But at least I wasn't worried to go back to your point as a a middle-aged white woman that I'd be shot. I would have been if I'm black. And I heard an interesting interview during the last upheavals with an African who was there in, in the Chicago area. And he said he'd lived in Ghana, he'd lived in South Africa, he'd lived in the UK. And it, 
you know, it was only when he went to the States that he worried when he went out of the house whether he'd come back alive or not. This is a, a fear spiraling out of control and over many generations. And let's hope that that kind of reconciliation can be effective. If I may, as a Nigerian-American male raised in Southern Alabama, Professor Soskis, you're very accurate. It, it's interesting. I mean, I've lived in Ireland. I've lived in Nigeria. I've lived in the UK. And, you know, and I'll be visiting the U.S. shortly. But even when I go to, to visit the U.S., like I don't drive in the car unless my mother's in the car. My mother's white. My mother drives the car. I don't drive it, you know. I feel as if in the United States, human life is becoming increasingly less valuable. I feel it when I'm there. Uh, when I'm in the airport, I see, you know, officers carrying guns and, and staring you down if you have a thick beard, if you have dark skin. I mean, and this is why I think it's important to raise the, the attention uh, to the issue of the state. What is the role of the state in all this? On the note of reconciling with Boko Haram, in short, no. And to give maybe a more lengthy response, I would say I agree with Professor Soskis in that there are some situations where the other actor in no way would they ever want to reconcile with you. I would actually call this question a bit of a useless hypothetical, because that's like asking, you know, would Lucifer want to reconcile with God? We're coming to the end of this podcast, and I do want to ask whether each of you have an example from history of successful reconciliation that you can share with us. Let's start with you, Janet. When I first joined Cambridge University a long time ago in, in 88, there was a lot of hostility to women. Women were only 7% of the university lecturers. And there were, in my own college, people who were deeply hostile. And there was nothing you could do in a way. I mean, if you became just really an angry, assertive woman about it, you know, it just exacerbated things and drove you nuts. And so you just had to, in that situation, there was there were many times you just had to put up and shut up and explain by your personal testimony that you weren't the kind of person they thought they were or whatever, you weren't going to wreck everything. And of course, things changed because the younger men were different from the older men. The younger men wanted to spend more time with their families. So everything changed and changed rather quickly from patterns that would have seemed to the senior male fellows when I first joined the university. Time immemorial. I remember being told this, can't admit women to these colleges. They'd fall down. The universe would fall down, etc. Need an act of parliament. No, it happened quicker than you might imagine. Now, so I, I think we look around, we see the difficult things. We don't see all the things that have moved rather more felicitously and quickly. Yes, absolutely. I would say, um, to begin with, how do we measure reconciliation success? So that's kind of like the uh, general framework there. Um, two, I think there's also a difference between individual and systemic reconciliation. I think that perhaps individual reconciliation is much easier to achieve and also much more frequent than, say, you know, macro level systemic reconciliation between communities, between states. I've often looked to as an example, not something that has delivered comprehensively, but I think of like the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa as infrastructurally a reconciliation process that was able to achieve a certain amount of social cohesion, social justice. Of course, it was not perfect. Um, you look at South Africa today, you see the disparities between the white and black communities politically, economically. But uh, in terms of putting infrastructural processes in place to facilitate national reconciliation, I think that that should be considered a general and rough model for how the world could be referenced in the future when similar situations arise and need to be dealt with uh, effectively. 
With that, we've come to the end of the show. I'd like to thank my guests, Janet Soskis and Christopher Wadibia. And thanks to you two for listening. You know where to find us and we'd love to hear from you. Check out our back catalogue of discussions, more than 80 to date, and have a listen to our podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab Design, for everything you need to know about reconciliation and much more. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.